Well, it's good to be here, isn't it? It's good to, good to worship and good to celebrate the God that we have. Well, let me just start this morning by saying this, and I don't know if she'll appreciate my saying this, but I'll explain. But my wife loves food. Now, not in the way that you would normally think, all right? She's not a big eater. You can tell that. So it's not about volume or quantity. It's about quality. It's actually that she doesn't like food so much. She actually likes the way that food tastes. And she loves food for its flavors. Now, me, not so much. Um, in fact, we're kind of like opposites. So she's always wanting to try new things. And if we go to a restaurant, a lot of times she's like, oh, I think I'll try this or I think I'll try this. I'm looking for the chicken fingers because I know I'm going to like that. I know I'm going to be good with that. And that way I don't have to take a, a, a risk and I can avoid a rude surprise. I can eat the same thing over and over and over again and completely enjoy it. And my wife just looks at me like, that is so weird. How do you do that? She just doesn't understand it. She doesn't think it's right. And when we first got married, in the early days of our marriage, which is like the first 30 years, she was trying to fix me. And uh, she would say, hey, how about trying this? So she would walk up and say, do you want to try this? Which really wasn't a question. It was like, hey, I want you to try this. And it wasn't even really that. It was like, here, try this. Because she thought that I would enjoy this, and so I would try it. And she would say, isn't that good? And I'd be like, uh, no, I'm not really liking this. I remember the first, like, when we were first married or first dating or whatever, um, she wanted me to try scallops. Like, anybody have scallops? How many like scallops? Okay, yeah, so like, aren't those good? I'm like, oh, how do I get this out of my mouth politely, you know? I'm in a restaurant, and <laughs> there's not like I could run out to the, to the restroom or whatever like that. But she's enjoying it, and she assumes that I will or that I can at least learn to, and that would be important because if I could enjoy a few more things, that would give her a few more options when it came to the menus for dinners every night. And I confess, I make dinner difficult. I just do because there's just too many flavors that I don't like. But we literally have different tastes. We taste things differently. And science actually tells us that people taste differently. And I've mentioned this before. But they take people and they can actually tell what kind of taster you are by the number of taste buds that you have in your tongue. And so some people have like tons and tons of taste buds. And they're called super tasters. And it's because the flavors overwhelm them because of, of all of their taste buds. And then you have the sub-tasters, and they have fewer taste buds, but they um, like more things because flavors don't overwhelm them. So I consider myself a super-taster. My wife's a sub-taster. Doesn't that sound quite right? But anyhow, we all taste things a little bit different. I guess this is somewhat genetic. I don't know. Although they say that if you will introduce foods to kids by the time that they're two years old, they'll learn anything you feed them, they'll eat. So if you want your kids to learn to eat something, make sure they, you know, it's part of their diet by the time they're two years old. I don't think that's true, personally. I had three kids. They all ate in my house. They all ate the same things. I have two that will eat anything, and I have a third one that will eat peanut butter. And that's about it. Because I don't know why. But we all have said something like this to somebody before. Here, try this. I've done it. Oh, isn't that good? Now, when I do it, it's usually something involving chocolate, okay? Because I'm trying to be thoughtful of the person I'm handing it to. 
But this is why I think David said in Psalm 34, 8, and this is the theme verse that we're going to be using for the next six weeks. But David says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And it's obviously a metaphor. But he's saying, hey, I have checked out God. I have this relationship with God. And it is so good, you got to try this too. Because you're going to love it. And that's what we're going to be talking about here for the next six weeks is encouragement from David, from me, from the Scripture to say, hey, give God a try. Because you're going to be incredibly amazed by how good that he is. And David wants us to experience the goodness of God, but God wants us to experience the the goodness of God. We've talked about this in our catechism. God didn't create us for him. God created us for us so that we could actually enjoy his goodness. And it was right there in the definition that we read here this morning. So we're going to be talking about God's goodness for the next six weeks here, how we can experience it or how we can taste it. And we're going to be looking at some examples of God's goodness that maybe you haven't even thought about. Like, oh yeah, God really is good in this way. And we're going to be doing that this morning. But as as David said, taste and see, and and used that food metaphor, we're going to use it too. And what we're going to do is we're going to actually dive into Scripture, and we're going to see things in Scripture where it talks about food, and the Bible talks a lot about food. And we're going to say, what can we learn from this story or this incident or this passage about food, and what does it teach us about God's goodness? And actually, food is an example in itself of God's goodness. So since this is the first week, let me set the table. And if you want to, you can follow along with me. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. And, and just to start here, this is just the basis for everything that we're going to be talking about through the next six weeks. And then we're going to take it a step further and look at another passage in the New Testament here. But let's go to Genesis 1, verse 26. God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so we notice some things right away. First of all, we notice that we are created by God. We notice, secondly, that we are created in his image. He says, let us make mankind. And he says, let us make mankind in our image. So we are like God. We're not as God, but we reflect God. And if you want to know a little bit about what God's like, we should be able to look at the people around us and say, oh, God's like that. He's got personality. He's got feelings. And and when we can learn a lot about God, because we're made in his image. But thirdly, we are created with a purpose. And that purpose, as we're told here, is to rule over creation. So we keep reading here in verse number 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so he goes on and he's making a bigger point here about the fact that mankind was made in God's image. And he introduces also this element where it's both male and female. And if we're going to completely understand God as much as we can from looking at people, we have to have both male and female to get that understanding. If we exclude one or the other from the, from the equation, we, get, we don't get an accurate view of what God is like. 
But it says there that last line, it says male and female, he created them. And then verse 28, notice what it says here. And God blessed them. And he said to them, okay, let me stop there. So he created them, but he blessed them. What does that mean? He favors them with his goodness. And he favors them with his goodness by what is about to be said here. So this is how God favors man. He favors him by saying, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So how did God bless man in what was just said right there? He blesses man and then he gives man a purpose, a reason to live. Something to get up every day and do. He gives man a purpose. And we call this the cultural mandate. But it's the idea that God created man, put him in this garden and said, okay, you're surrounded by all these resources. Go figure it out. Now, some of you, you just read that verse with me off your phone. The, and, and those phones that we carry around are just crazy, aren't they? All the different things that they can do. But do you realize that all the technology and all of the natural resources which were necessary to create that phone that you hold in your hand were present in the Garden of Eden? And what God says is, hey, go figure it out. And for thousands of years, we have been figuring it out. And this is part of the goodness of God, that we could keep learning, that we could keep growing, that we can keep exploring, that we can get up every day and say, what is new out there that I never knew before, that I've never been able to, that, that maybe mankind has never done? And so God is good to us by giving us a purpose but then let's keep reading. Verse number 29. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. This is cool. One of the ways that God blesses is gives purpose. You know another way that God blessed mankind? He gave man food. And the food you eat is actually the blessing of God. And you're like, well, yeah, because I get hungry and I need it for sustenance. But have you stopped to think about this? That all the food that you eat tastes different and has different textures and is flavored differently and you perceive it differently. And so we can actually go down to a chili cook-off here in just a few minutes and we could take something and go, oh, that's good. And we could take something else and say, oh, that's good. And we could try something, oh, that's good. And that is part of the goodness of God in our lives, the simple ability to eat and enjoy the flavors of food. I love that. What does that say about God? That says about God to me is like, you know what? Every little detail of your life I care about, and I want to make it good. He could have just made food just food, you know what I'm saying? He could have made everybody like me. Like we all just have the same lunch every single day of our lives. But he didn't do that. He said, let me be good to you in giving you food. Let me be good to you in giving you taste. And he goes on, he says, all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, all the creatures that move along their own, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for 
food, and it was so. And then notice this next verse. And God saw all that he had made, man, and man with its purpose, and animals and plants and food, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, and it was the sixth day. And so we're going to look at those ideas today, food and purpose. But we're actually going to flip the order of them as we move on here. And so we're going to look in, first, uh, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 5 as we talk about our first food item of our series here, Taste and See. And the interesting thing is that we're actually not going to talk about a food item, but we're going to talk about an item that goes with food, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But let's go ahead and turn over there with me to Matthew chapter 13, if you would. And I want to read this verse. And I'm going to get ahead of my notes here because I'm changing up the order a little bit. Matthew 5, verse number 13. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to all these people who have gathered on this hillside to listen to him. And he says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And let's read this again. I'm going to read this in the New Living Translation this time. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. We read similar to that in Luke chapter 14, verses 34 to 35. It says this, salt is good for seasoning, but if salt loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone who with ears to hear should listen and should understand. Mark 9.50, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. And so the first food item that we look at is this item of salt. And it's not actually a food item. It's actually a mineral. In fact, salt is rocks. Did you realize that? When you eat salt, you are eating rocks. And every, so um, fortunately, it's in very, very small quantities. But what do we know about salt? Let's just talk about salt a little bit here, because what we know about salt will give us some insight to what Jesus says as he speaks to the people on the hillside that day. What do we know about salt? First of all, in ancient times, salt was somewhat scarce. In fact, it was considered very valuable. Its nickname was actually white gold. And sometimes it would be traded instead of money. If you go back to Roman times, and this would be the times of Jesus too, Roman soldiers were often paid in salt instead of in currency. And so when they went to the army, because it was so valuable to them. Now, it's interesting that, to me too that, have um, you ever heard of that phrase, somebody is worth his salt? This is where it comes from. So the Roman soldiers would receive that instead of a, a, a stipend or payment, they would get salt. But it, the, the word salt in, in Latin is sal, S-A-L. There's a word that we use that has the same root, S-A-L-A-R-Y, salary. It actually comes from this idea of salt being paid to a worker. 
That's how valuable it was considered back in the day. And so that Roman soldier who was worth his salt was actually worth what he was getting paid. Super, super valuable in the time of Christ. The city of Rome itself was built uh, away from the sea, which was their main source of salt. But the oldest Roman road that we know of, you know, Rome was famous for their roads, was called the Villa Salaria. Salaria, the road of salt, a valuable commodity. Secondly, it's an essential nutrient for humans. We can't live without it. Every cell in the human body contains salt. An adult body contains about 250 grams of salt. The human body requires sodium to conduct nerve impulses, to move muscles, and to maintain correct levels of water in the body. Too little salt is dangerous. Too much salt is dangerous. And by the way, trying to cut salt out of your diet, good luck. I'm trying. It's hard. But we have to have salt to live. Thirdly, Salt was, and it still is, used as a preservative. It draws out moisture. It inhibits bacterial growth. It prevents spoilage. In the times of Christ, it would have been used to preserve meat and fish. Today, it's still used as a preservative. Go get, look at your lunch meat. Go look at anything that comes in a box that you eat. It has tons of salt in it to try to keep it fresh so it doesn't go stale. It's a preservative. I already mentioned that it's a rock. It's sodium and chlorine combined to form rocks. Interestingly, only about 6% of the salt, though, that's mined in the world today is used for food. And most of it's used chemically and primarily to get rid of snow and ice in the winter. Maybe you were aware of this. We already celebrated uh, Better Made in, in, in uh, Downey today. But uh, the largest salt mine in the Midwest is actually located uh, down in Melvindale. Um, and is a thousand feet below the streets of Melvindale and, and, and Allen Park and in the Detroit area here. Um, and a uh, thousand feet below the surface, 1,500 acres of mine there, 100 miles of road all underneath the surface. But salt is used then to actually care for for the snow that we have here, too. Fifth thing, this is the one that we really think about, is salt is used for flavoring. And it changes the taste of what we eat. And whether chemically or, or, or however it works, I'm not a scientist, but it actually, they tell us, makes bitter things more sweet. And it makes, and so salt is actually a sweetener of food. I wouldn't think of it as that way, but we put salt on food to give it more flavors. So that is Primarily what we think of as salt is how do we use it for flavoring. And there are all kinds of different salts that you can use. And most of us use like just a, a table salt, which is, which is iodized salt, which has iodine included in it. There's kosher salt, which doesn't have that. And there's, there's pink Himalayan salt, and there's, there's black Himalayan salt, and there's Celtic sea salt, and there's flake salt, and there's uh, uh, lava salt. And there's all these different kinds of salts, but we use it to flavor foods. It also has many medicinal and therapeutic properties. How about this phrase, rubbing salt in the wound? You ever heard that? That was actually a practice from the past that was salt was used as an antiseptic. Now that sounds painful, but that's where that term comes from. Rubbing salt in the wound was actually a good thing because it cleansed it. 
But we still use salts therapeutically today. There's Epsom salts, and we use saline rinses and salt lamps. And you go to salt rooms, and if you go up on Sashaba in Clarkston, there's the salt float. I don't know if anybody's tried that. Don't raise your hands. But it's a 10-inch pool that's filled with salt water that's so dense that you can actually float on top of it. And uh, so to relax. So I don't know, maybe that sounds good about right now. But we use it therapeutically. It's also used for soil. So, and it can be used as fertilizer. And you may have noticed that in, in the verse that we read there from Luke. Like when Jesus is talking about this, oh, it's not even good to be thrown out there as fertilizer. Um, check out a box of miracle Grow though. And you'll find that sodium is actually one of the, the uh, things that's included in that couple other things to be said about salt. It can be addictive. Did you know that? That it can be as addictive as, as uh, alcohol or as um, uh, nicotine. And uh, it, by consuming salt, it triggers a release of dopamine, which is the uh, neurotransmitter associated with the brain's pleasure center, meaning that we eat salty food and we feel better. So some of you are sitting up here and watching Sui potato chips. You're like, oh, please, I want one of those. Salt can actually be addictive, and, and we know that, right? It's like, oh, I just need something salty to eat right now. We've all been there, uh, haven't we? The next thing, salt is consistent. Do you realize that salt never goes bad? Salt has no shelf life. It can get clumpy. Or it can have its taste compromised when it's mixed with something else. But salt itself never goes bad. And you never, ever have to worry about eating bad salt. Never goes bad. And then one last thing here. It's mentioned in the Bible a lot, over 30 times. And we just looked at one of those passages. There's so many other passages. So that's what we know about salt. But why does that matter? It matters because Jesus references salt and says that his followers, that would be you, that would be me, that would be the people sitting on the hillside that day, are the salt of the earth. So why did Jesus call his followers the salt of the earth? Now, we've used that phrase too. We're getting all these idioms that we, that we use in our conversation and we're finding out their, their backgrounds. But there's another one that we use. We sometimes talk about a person, a good person, a moral person, a trustworthy person, a person that we really like. And we'll say, you know what? He's just salt of the earth. You've heard that phrase? It comes right here from what Jesus is saying. And it talks about a person generally who's humble, unassuming, eager to help, low drama. Just one of those guys that you want on your team, on your side. And that's what Jesus is telling us when he says, you are the salt of the earth. He's telling us to be that kind of person that everybody else will want to be around because of the difference in the impact that you make. But he's saying a little bit more than that too, I think. And so let me just mention five things here that I think Jesus is saying when he says to his followers or when he says to us, you are the salt of the earth and what he's challenging us to live up to. The first one is this. He's saying this, you are of great value. You are of great value. And most of us think of salt as being ordinary because in today's world, it is ordinary. But in the Roman world, in the, in the time of Christ, as we've already mentioned, it was the white gold 
And when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he is saying, you are valuable and you are valuable to this world. And this world needs you because of your value. You're not ordinary. You're special. You're made by God in his image. And we're going back now to where we started. And you have incredible value. And for every single person who sits in this room when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he is saying to you, you, you have value. You matter. You are actually priceless. And that's how Jesus thinks of you. So you can insert your name in there. You are the salt of the earth. And Jesus would say, whatever your name is, you are the salt of the earth, Brent. You have value. You have value to me, and you have value to this earth as well. You have value to the world that we live in. You have value to the people that we live among. The second thing, though, he's saying is your value is intensified when you have access. Now, salt has value, and salt had value in that day. But when was salt most valuable? When it was applied. To, to just collect salt wouldn't have made a whole lot of difference. To collect salt and to have your meat go bad, that would be foolish. To collect salt and have it sitting there on the table where you ate something that tasted bad, when you could have flavored it, that would be foolish. To collect salt when, when even you could have used it to fertilize your ground and your plants, that would be foolish. But your value is intensified when you have impact. And so the point is that we have this value that God gives us, but our value is to share what we have been given with the world around us. We looked at in Genesis where Jesus or where God says, okay, I'm going to give you this job to do, this purpose, and it's the cultural mandate. But what Jesus is doing here is the exact same thing. And he's saying to his followers, I'm going to give you a purpose too. And it's your spiritual mandate. And your purpose is to make the world around you better. But you have to do that by being engaged. And that's more than just living a moral life. And I don't know how many times I've heard this. Like, you know, if we'll just live a moral and upstanding life, the world's going to be inspired to be like us. I don't think so. I mean, I hate to pop that bubble. It's not bad. It's that when we take the morals or when we take actually the love of Christ that we have and we go to people and we treat them and we love them and we care for them in the way that Jesus would, that that's what actually makes the difference. We have to be engaged. So we make, thirdly, we make an impact by living differently. Now, there's an interesting question that comes when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And the question is this, how would the people who were listening that day have interpreted that? What did they think that Jesus meant? They probably would have gotten the fact that, oh, you're valuable. Some scholars say well, that, that they would have seen themselves as Jesus saying, well, you're the preservatives of the earth. And there's some reason to think that. Uh, even among Jesus' followers, like the, Peter, James, John, those guys were fishermen. Well, they probably didn't take all of their fish and sell them as, as they got off the boat. 
A lot of them were probably packed in salt so they could be shipped to other places where they could be sold. So that preservative aspect of salt would have been a big deal to them. Except I'm not sure that's what Jesus' main point was. I don't think he was saying is you need to preserve the world. Like if you're, uh, and it's not like you live better, and if you live better, it's going to make, it's going to, you know, it's going to make the, 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 the world more moral. I don't think that's the point. Feinberg, in her book here, Taste and See, she brings in another aspect that maybe they would have understood it. And I read that verse from Luke, or uh, yeah, from Luke, where it says it's, it's not good to be used as fertilizer. They might have seen it as fertilizer. So when he says, hey, you go out, uh, you're the salt of the earth, so you need to go out and you need to, you need to like, encourage and, and, and help people grow around you. And that's a great sentiment, too, but I'm not sure that's the main point. I think the point here was the whole flavoring idea. The literal translation is this. If the salt loses its saltiness, what's it talking about? It's talking about its taste. And so what Jesus is saying here is you need to add flavor to the world that you live in. So the, the concept is when I'm with somebody... When I'm in the room, when I'm in the workplace, when I'm in the classroom, when, when I'm in the dining room, and I'm with somebody, who I am as a Jesus follower brings flavor and zest and encouragement and life and light and energy to the world. And so when we walk into the room, we're the ones who turn the lights on. We're the ones that are like, oh, yeah, I'm glad that person's here. Not because we're such an outstanding personality, but because we bring these characteristics of Jesus to the world. Now, the question is, how do we do this? And I think there's a, there's a, a thought that's out there in today's world that we need to push back against. And it's that, that we're going to, like, somehow mold the world into our moral framework. And so we need to go on the aggressive here, and we, we, need, to, we need to make people conform, and we need to push re, reform, and, and, and everybody's got to follow these, these laws and these rules, and we're going to make society better that way. Except if you look at the context of this verse, when we back up to the 12 verses that are before it, we have the Beatitudes where Jesus says to his followers, hey, blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who endure persecution. Blessed are those who pray for those who persecute them. Blessed are those who live at a disadvantage, who take the blows of life and instead of fighting back, say, okay, I'm all right with that. I like how one person said this in a blog that he wrote about this. He says, this is what it means to live as, as a flavorant in our world. In the midst of tragedy, we bring hope. In our culture of divisiveness, we promote unity. In the face of hurt, we offer healing. In response to hate, we show love. In a world of pragmatism, in might makes right, instead we model integrity. Where we see injustice, we champion for the oppressed. We don't seek to cancel. We seek to learn, to understand, and to forgive. In a society obsessed by power, we show meekness and humility. That's 
how we flavor the world. I had lunch recently with, with somebody who is a, is a recent Christian. And that person asked me this question, all right? How come, I'm quoting here, how come there are Jesus followers out there who are like yelling at people and angry at people? And then followed that question with a, with a follow-up question. And I kind of expected the question to be, is, is that the way they're supposed to act? You know, why are they acting all angry at the world? Is that the way they're supposed to act? But that's not the follow-up question. The follow-up question I got was, are they really Jesus followers? All of, you know, these people who claim to be Jesus followers are out there angry at the world. Are they really followers of Jesus? And I was like, whoa, that's really perceptive, isn't it? And so we are to go out and flavor the earth. How? By living at a disadvantage, by being gracious and kind and sharing our faith. The goal is not to reform the world. The goal is for Jesus to transform the world, and he wants to use us as salt in the, in the, in the process. So we bring hope, and we bring encouragement, and we bring life, and we bring maybe some zest, and we make the lives of people around us better in every way, but especially spiritually. The people love it when we show up because what? We bring encouragement or we bring hope or we bring like possibilities and positivity and love and Jesus to the conversation. So the fourth point here is living differently or living as salt. That is our purpose. And the fifth thing is this, having a purpose Living with purpose is a gift given to you by the goodness of God. And we can go back into the garden and where God says to Adam and Eve, hey, fill the earth, subdue it, learn how to manage it, pull out of it what you can and help it flourish. The same challenge is given to us as Jesus followers today to go into this world that we live in and to interact with it, and to take these resources that we've given, the Holy Spirit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, take all of these things and use them to create a flourishing. And that's what our purpose is. But mankind is fulfilled in the garden by living out his purpose. And we know that. We've all experienced that too. When, When you've really done something, you, you step back and say, oh, that was me, or, and, or that went well, and we're like, we feel that fulfillment. The same thing comes to us when we live out this fulfillment of salt of the earth. We find goodness in that where God says, hey, that's what your life is about. And how many people are out there in today's world who struggle with purpose? I don't know what I'm here for. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I mean, I, I have this job. I don't even really like it. I mean, I, I do these things, and I, I try to find things that, that I, I have fun and, and, and bring me some pleasure. But at the end of the day, it leaves me feeling so empty. And, and really, what is this life all about? I don't even get it. Jesus is saying, hey, here's what life is about. Life is about being salt on this earth. 
Life is about taking the resources that you've been given and sharing them with others. Life is about taking Jesus and sharing him with others. Life is about taking these things that were taught in God's word, like kindness and gentleness and grace and hope and mercy and love, and making that part of, of the fabric of our lives and of the fabric of our relationships. That's what your purpose is. And when you step into that, you're going to experience God's goodness. And you're going to say, wow, life is so good. So the invitation is this, to taste and see. On a very practical level, the invitation is to taste and see when we're talking about food. And you know what? We're going to go celebrate and have some good food in just a little bit. And we're going to sit there and go, oh, that's so good. And God's going to be like, yes, that's what I made it to be. But it needs to go way beyond that. Because we can go taste of God's purpose in our lives. And we can go out and we can be the salt of the earth. And we can make a difference in the lives of people around us. Not because of who we are, but because of who we know. And then we can experience God's purpose in our lives. And in the process, we will have tasted and seen that God is good. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for creating us with purpose. We don't have to get up every day and wander around in a fog and wonder what it's all about. We can know that actually we have a task that we've been given. And in doing it and fulfilling it, we can find satisfaction in our lives. But God, I pray that you would inspire us with this need to be the salt of the earth. That we would lean into it, we'd grab a hold of it so that we could experience your goodness of purpose in that as well. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I have two questions for you this morning. First of all, the question is, are you a follower of Jesus? If not, I invite you to jump in, to follow him, because he will, first of all, he sees you as valuable, but he will give you purpose in life too. And he will bring things in your life that you could never manufacture on your own, and you will experience his goodness in incredible ways. And all you need to do is in your heart, in a simple prayer, a conversation between you and God, invite Jesus Christ into his, your life. Ask him to forgive you for your sins. Trust him. What he did for you when he died on the cross. And make that commitment to follow him. You can do that where you sit this morning. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you. The Christ follower. How are you salt in this earth? Whose lives are, are you touching? It's more than just being an example. It's actually applying the grace and the kindness and the love and the forgiveness that you've been given to others. It's got to be in contact somehow. So where are you in contact? With people around you who need the flavoring that you can bring. And how will you commit to doing so? God, give us the grace we need to obey you. To follow your commands are for our good. 
pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to finish with a song this morning, but we have something else before then. First of all, on the way out, you're going to get your little take it home. Take it home, put it on your refrigerator. And it actually just has a question for you this week. It just says this, how have I flavored my world this week? Put that on your refrigerator. And let me encourage you to do this. If there's, you have the opportunity to be salt in your world, just write a little note to yourself. I got to be salt. And put that on your thing as you on your take-it-home sheet there as you put it on your refrigerator. Just an encouragement. If all we do is listen on Sunday and don't apply God's truth, it doesn't change your life. It has to be applied to be transformed. So grab your take-it-home when you leave this morning. But then we wanted to finish up this morning, too, with a moment. <laughs> I'm going to get all choked up. Sorry, guys. Um, like for Mark and Sue. Um, I am so excited for you guys, and I am grieving so bad for wh- for what um, for what we're losing as a church, but what I'm losing too. Mark, you've been incredible. I have had the privilege of working with great people in ministry my whole life, and Mark, you're right at the top of the list, and uh, and Sue what you guys have meant to this church. So would you guys come up here? We have a gift for you from the church. And then what we're going to do, you might have to be a prayer because I'm not going to make it. But we're going to, first of all, let's give you a gift. Come on up on stage.